For years, advocates for better policing have pushed reforms, consent decrees, civilian oversight, body cameras. But after George Floyd's death in 2020, is reform still tenable or is it defund or bust? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice, and welcome to this, our ninth season. I'm David Harris, still your all-purpose justice nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system, and still so incredibly glad for that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, if there's one concept that has tied together the greatest number of episodes we've done here on the Criminal Injustice Podcast, one central idea, it is the importance and the practice of reforming the system. This goes for every part of it. Prisons, jails, incarceration, cash bail, long and short prison sentences, prosecution, the racial disproportions that stain everything from prison populations to the use of fines and fees. And maybe, maybe most of all, reform of policing. The work, the practices, the struggles, the dire need for change and reform of police departments, police practices, police culture. Think about it. All the way back in our first season in 2016, episode two featured Sam Walker, one of the most deeply knowledgeable and engaged people in the academic world on reforms put in place to increase police accountability. That same season in episode five, Mark Kappelhoff, veteran Department of Justice attorney in the Civil Rights Division on changing police departments. Tracy Cassie in episode 15, former assistant chief in Denver, then in charge of training for all of the NYPD, but most important to us, one of the founders of the Center for Policing Equity, one of the most important reform groups of the last 15 years. And then in episode 62, her Center for Policing Equity co-founder, Dr. Philip Atiba Goff, one of the leading researchers and practitioners in the police reform field, and two members of the core team behind the National Initiative for Community Trust and Justice, the three-year Obama administration project to build trust between police and communities in six pilot cities through procedural justice and implicit bias training. The list, and it's quite a list, the list goes on. But then in May 2020, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, when a city police officer knelt on his neck for almost nine minutes. And when the nation, the world, when they saw that, captured on video, things changed. Reform? What had reform done to save George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or so many others? Reform was not the answer, a lot of people said. People wanted police departments abolished, ended, defunded. Listen to the scene in a public park in Minneapolis on June 7th, 2020. It's just a few days after George Floyd died at the end of May as a large 
crowd awaits an appearance by nine members of the Minneapolis City Council. The audio here is from Fox 9 KMSP. And if that was the demand, the people would get what they wanted. Reform was over. Here's City Council member Lisa Bender speaking at that same rally in Minneapolis, announcing that it was the position of nine members of that city council, a veto-proof majority, that the Minneapolis Police Department would be ended. This audio is from KARE Television 11. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. It's hard to imagine a more powerful moment. And this all happened. The death of George Floyd, the unrest that followed it in Minneapolis, the announcement you just heard, more demonstrations. This all happened in one of the six pilot cities for the National Initiative for Community Trust and Justice. Minneapolis had had the best that reform could do, one might say. It had been tried, and still, George Floyd. The calls for defunding the police rang through the summer and into the fall, almost everywhere in the United States. And I don't mean to say that the whole country was on board with this. Far, far from it. But for anyone wanting change in policing and not just a reinforcement of the status quo, as others seem to, reform seemed left behind. It's now nine months since George Floyd's death as I record this interview. There have been some cuts in police department funding in some places, some large cuts, in fact, in some places. But no police department seems to have been zeroed out and replaced with something else. Instead, there has been a very large number of commissions and task forces and working groups of all kinds across the country looking for ways to change things. I've been part of one of those here in Pittsburgh. Where are we then? Where does all this lead? How do we get change in an environment like this? Because we really need change. Our guest on this episode has some thoughts on this, and I can hardly imagine anyone better qualified. Christy Lopez is professor of practice at Georgetown Law School, where she has taught since 2017. She teaches courses on criminal justice and police criminal justice reform, and she co-leads Georgetown Law's innovative policing program. Prior to coming to the academic world, Professor Lopez was a leader in the efforts of the U.S. Justice Department to reform American policing. From 2010 to 2017, she was deputy chief in the special litigation section of the Department of Justice. That's the unit in the department's civil rights section that investigates police departments and other law enforcement agencies for patterns or practices of violating civil rights. Professor Lopez led the team that investigated Ferguson, Missouri's police department after the death of Michael Brown. She also led DOJ investigations of departments in Chicago, New Orleans, the L.A. Sheriff's Department, Newark, New Jersey's police, 
and many others. Her police reform work has been widely recognized by her peers with a number of high awards. With Georgetown Law's innovative policing program, she has helped create the ABLE program, which stands for Active Bystander Law Enforcement. She is also a contributing columnist for the Washington Post. Christy Lopez, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Let's start with some of the things that you did in your pre-academic life when you were uh, deputy chief in the special litigation section and before that, uh, a practicing lawyer in that division. Uh, As I said, introducing you, this is the division that has the power to investigate police departments when they exhibit a pattern or practice of constitutional violations. These are the, the investigations that turn into consent decrees which I know a lot of our listeners have heard about, overseen by federal judges, independent monitors, and so forth. This is all about systemic police reform. And in fact, the first of these was in Pittsburgh in 1997. You've been involved in so many of these. You've led many of them. Uh, What's it like to conduct an investigation like that? It's got to be an enormous undertaking, very complicated, not without opposition. Tell us what that's like. Uh, It really is an enormous undertaking involving the work of, um, sometimes it feels like a cast of thousands. Uh, You really need the support of the entire Department of Justice and of the community that you are uh, essentially investigating. We used uh, experts and and over time, the type of expertise and the number of experts often increased. We had to have experts in more statisticians, uh, mental health, uh, you know, areas of expertise that we didn't look at in our first cases, which were primarily focused on use of force and accountability. Uh, It's also, I think, one thing to keep in mind when you think about a DOJ investigation of a law enforcement agency is that although the, uh, the, the most high profile aspect of the investigation is the consent decree, that's really just a small portion of the work. And what I mean by that is uh, we often underestimate the impact of a findings report and the work that goes into drafting uh, that findings report, trying to make it speak to many different audiences, as well as being um, uh, rigorous uh, and legally accurate. It's a lot of different audiences to speak to and to try to do that in a way that is comprehensible to any of those audiences, much less all of them can be difficult. And then when you get to the consent decree, people often think of that as the end point, but of course, that's just the beginning. Uh, That's just the roadmap for reform. Uh, So really the bulk of work that um, goes into these cases comes after the consent decree is negotiated and entered as a court order. Right, so the consent decree comes out of the investigation. You're speaking to multiple audiences. You have to have your legal theories right. You talked about, I heard you say, it's important to speak to the community and include their input too. Then you come out with this consent decree to overall reform the department. And the usual time frame on this is five years. That was what it was in Pittsburgh. Um, And just to be clear, these things are not about one bad incident, right? No, far from it. Um, The statute that these consent decrees are uh, developed under used to be called one for one for one. And now it's called 12601. It was recodified. 
And that statute only allows the Department of Justice to conduct an investigation and seek relief where there's what they call a pattern or a practice of law enforcement misconduct. And so what you're really looking for when you conduct these investigations and develop these remedies is uh, whether there is a, a broad pat pattern of misconduct, whether it's race discrimination or use of force or anything of that nature. And then most importantly, in some respects, you're looking at what about the agency or about that community is causing uh, that pattern or practice. And in your consent decree, you have to try to develop remedies that really get at those root causes of the unconstitutional conduct. So you're getting at the causes, you're looking to put together a roadmap for the next five years, let's say, of changes. And that is all overseen, not just by the judge, but by an independent monitor, uh, somebody to tell the judge on a monthly or quarterly or whatever basis what kind of progress is being made. And I think I read that you've actually served as a monitor once yourself. I did. I served as a monitor in Oakland, California for a federal uh, consent decree that was actually brought not by DOJ, but by private plaintiffs. And that's really where I learned a lot about police reform. Um, and that, unfortunately, although some of some decrees last five years or even less, that decree is unfortunately still ongoing. Uh, I left uh, as monitor in 2010. The decree was started in 2003. Um, I left in 2010 and, and the decree is still ongoing to this day. You must meet resistance in these investigations. I mean, people can't be all that happy to see the Department of Justice show up. I mean, I know there are instances where mayors or even chiefs have invited the department to come in and investigate their departments. But the more common thing has to be a negative feeling when you guys step in the door. Well, what do you what do you do about that? Am I right about that first? I guess I shouldn't assume. But what do you do about that? Yeah, I, did. I think you can definitely put many of those uh, invitations in air quotes. Um, it is often, there's, an, there's an understanding that if they don't invite us in, we're going to be coming in anyway. So you might as well um, have as friendly an interaction as possible. And, and yes, there's often concern, there's resistance, there's uh, resentment. Um, but I also have to say that one of the things I've enjoyed most about this work is that every department I've ever investigated, every city I've ever gone into, there are so many people who are so grateful that you are doing the work. Uh, certainly that includes community members, um, but also in, I've never investigated a police department where I didn't have somebody in the police department come up to us and say, thank you for being here. We're so glad you're here. We were hoping you would come here. I remember in Chicago, a unit told us we popped the champagne when we heard you were coming. These are uh, the people, police themselves. These saying. are the police themselves. Yes, there are in every department that um, is, is, is broken enough to have a pattern of unconstitutional conduct. There are people there who want to fix it and they know that it's a task too big for the people within the department. And they are grateful and they are very, they're very helpful. And, and over time, I have to say, we often have less resistance from the department as they saw that we were serious, that we were, that we didn't, you know, uh, demonize policing or, um, or, or think that they were terrible people, that we understood how difficult this job was and that they often uh, had little or nothing to do with creating the problem uh, directly. And we all needed to work together to fix it. Now, one of the more significant cases that you investigated, I know, was the investigation of the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department. This all followed the death of Michael Brown in the summer of 2014. 
And uh, I know a lot of listeners will remember that that was a key moment in the national debate over police practices, that that really set off a lot of uh, activism and action and so forth. Uh, um, not all that dissimilar, not quite as much, but not that dissimilar from what we have seen in 2020. Uh, I wonder if you could recall that for us, tell us what that investigation was like and what made that investigation distinctive? Because I really thought that there were some things about it that, that really had different aspects than what you usually see. Yeah, for me, it, it really was a significant investigation, I think, to the country. And, and, and certainly, if I can be self-centered for a moment, um, for me personally as well, because it really opened my eyes to a lot of dynamics that I hadn't fully understood prior to that, even though I had been working in this area for uh, a couple of decades at that point. I, I, most of our investigations had been in large departments of large cities that were facing um, you know, really difficult problems of uh, high rates of violence um, that tended to be, the communities tend to be quite racially diverse, um, in, in, including in the leadership. What I hadn't seen before in Ferguson was the complete decoupling of policing from public safety. They're, they were clearly policing for revenue rather than to protect their constituents. And so, for example, we read, we read memos um, talking about the need to start a traffic initiative on the highway with no mention of public safety, but rather to, quote, start the revenue pipeline flowing. And when I saw that and saw that the way that the city was raising revenue on the backs of its poorest residents, on the backs of mostly people of color, completely either oblivious or telling themselves false narratives about why they were doing this and why it was okay, it really opened to my opened my eyes to how much policing in the United States really doesn't have a lot to do with public safety sometimes. Yeah. Well, that was a groundbreaking report because, uh, and you were involved in the writing of it. I know I read it myself and it's, uh, it goes beyond just the police department. It, it really takes on the entire justice system, so to speak, all of the raising of revenue that way, um, uh, as, as you said, on the backs of the poorest residents, mostly black residents. Uh, and that was, that was a different look at things, I think, than people had had before. So with all of these different consent decrees that you have been involved in, seeing them come, come to fruit and, and pass and so forth, how do you come out on the consent decree, on the pattern or practice tool is it, uh, as some say, and I, we had Sam Walker on this program a long time ago, and he talked about how he thought this was the, basically the best tool out there uh, for systemic reform, uh, or is it uh, a lot less than meets the eye, as some people have said? What's your take? I think that consent decrees are not a panacea, but I do think they're an important and in some places an essential tool. And I find it interesting that we don't really talk about how essential certain enforcement tactics in a lot of other areas are. But I think it's important to keep in mind that we are talking about the violation of people's most fundamental rights by the people who are sworn to protect them. And that deserves and that requires a response in any democracy, I think. And I think it's a good thing that these consent decrees allow that response to be forward looking and to try to make changes that will prevent violations in the future. That said, as, as you just referenced in Ferguson, we looked outside the police department because we knew that many of the problems were being caused by the way the court system was being run. 
um, by what the CFO was doing, for example. And I think that that's something that we need to look at more broadly in policing, that to fix policing, we need to look outside policing. And when you take that perspective, you recognize that no consent decree, especially one focused on police departments, is going to do the entirety of the work that needs to be done. So I do think they're important. I do think they're essential. I think we should keep studying um, ways to make them more effective and what about them is effective and what is not effective. But I think they're a tool that we should continue to use. Yeah. So um, the, uh, the, do they have an effect, do you think, beyond the individual police department? I mean, uh, do you know what I mean when I ask that? I mean, uh, you, you can go into a Ferguson or a Chicago or whatever, and you have a direct effect and hopefully it works and some of its or all of it sticks. But does it have a broader effect to have the Department of Justice doing this uh, broader in, in terms of how it might influence other departments? I actually think that in many instances, the impact of a particular consent decree is much broader outside the department than within the department. Ferguson is a perfect example of that, right? Um, Ferguson is a very challenged department. I think it is improving under the consent decree. It is taking far too long. But however much improvement happens in Ferguson because of that investigation will pale in comparison to the impact that that investigation had on police departments across the country. And I think that's one of the real values of this program coming out of the Department of Justice. And I've seen that in many other places. I've, I'm not sure I ever went to a conference while I was at DOJ back when people went to conferences um, that weren't on Zoom. Um, I'm not sure I ever went to a conference um, and was not approached by, by somebody who said, hey, I read your findings report and I used it to um, you know, convince my city council to make changes in how we recruit police officers. Or, hey, I read your consent decree and we use it to inform our community group about changes we should advocate for in training. Um, everywhere I went, I, people were using this information to influence policing uh, in their own communities in ways that were never quantified or measured or evaluated uh, systematically. So we don't, I'm not sure that we'll ever know the, the, the true impact of these consent decrees, but it's clear to me they have a broader impact, certainly than just within the departments uh, that they are directed at. Interesting. So you left the department right about the time that it stopped doing this work. In 2017 with the new administration, Attorney General Jeff Sessions under President Trump, Sessions had always been an opponent of these investigations. Uh, so uh, they basically turned the lights off on this stuff for a while. Uh, when Sessions came in, I remember it was, uh, they were, uh, the department was close to closing up the deal on the decrees in Baltimore and Chicago. Uh, and Baltimore got done, courtesy of the judge involved. Chicago actually became a state-based consent decree. Um, but that was it for a while. And uh, you enter a new phase of your own career at that point. And uh, now comes uh, May, late May of 2020 and the murder of George Floyd. And uh, this sets off an incredible firestorm, uh, not just in Minneapolis, but across the country and even in other parts of the world. And um, here are the... Uh, uh, many of the places in which reform has been done, Minneapolis being one of them. I don't think they had a consent decree, but they had the national initiative uh, for uh, community trust and justice in there, giving them reform uh, uh, juice and training and so forth. And, you know, it seemed like a lot of people became 
we're ready to say reform is over. That's the end. Uh, it hasn't worked. We can't do it anymore. It didn't save George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. And that was that. And the, a different agenda came to dominate the discussion. This, of course, was abolish, defund, uh, choose your label. And um, uh, that, I think, uh, while it had been a subject of discussion in certain you know, academic circles and activist circles, was pretty new to the wider public discussion. And I think it disturbed people to think of they really want to abolish police. They really want to defund, but they want to have no police. Is that is that what this is? And we saw the Minneapolis City Council come out and say, we're going to vote to have something different. Minneapolis police is going to be ended. And something caught my eye. I was watching all these things in that period, just like I know so many other people were. And this was a column that you wrote for the Washington Post. Um, and uh, I thought it was one of the more useful things I saw in that period. Um, and I just want to read you a little bit of what you wrote to set the context and ask you to talk about it, because I really thought uh, your, your, your comments were, were prophetic. Um, here's what you said. Uh, defunding the police is not as scary or even as radical as it sounds. And engaging on this topic is necessary if we are going to achieve the kind of public safety we need. During my 25 years dedicated to police reform, including places such as Ferguson, New Orleans, and Chicago, it has become clear to me that reform is not enough. Making sure that police follow the rule of law is not enough. Even changing the laws is not enough. To fix policing, we must first recognize how much we have come to over-rely on law enforcement. And this, like I said, you wrote this, and you're a person I've known for a long time, uh, involved in the deepest way in police reform, and you're saying reform is not enough. Fill out the picture for us. What was, what was the point you were trying to make? It's along the lines of what I was saying earlier, that over time I began to understand that a lot of policing is not really directed at public safety, that um, to fix policing you have to go outside policing. I had become much more aware of the impact that prosecutors have. I mean, one of the reasons I left DOJ and went to a law school was because I be it became quite clear to me that lawyers as legislators and prosecutors and defenders have a lot to do with how police do their work. And so for me, when I think about reform, I think about that as um, changing policing to comport with the law. But unfortunately, the law allows a lot of policing that is, is overly harmful or unnecessary. Um, and, and so that's why I wrote this piece to help explain to people that this is really just a natural progression of understanding how policing works. It really just requires us to take um, a more sophisticated uh to have a more sophisticated understanding of what we mean by public safety, to recognize that public safety is not only about street crime, it's also about everything from access to medical and mental health care, about clean water and shelter and parks and education. And all of those things feed into um, a broader definition of public safety, but also directly into the things that we think about when we think about public safety, you know, precipitous violence. And when we think about public safety in that way, we realize that we need a much broader spectrum of actors to address it. And then we also, I think, and what I the point I tried to make in this piece is that we've come to over rely on police 
to address all of this public safety and all of these problems, you know, individuals who are, who are in mental health crisis, uh, people who do not have enough money to pay for car insurance. These are not things that we should be criminalizing, that we should be making uh, part of our criminal legal system. And we're never going to be safe or feel safe. And we're always going to have race disparities in how we do policing unless we rethink how we're addressing public safety. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Christy Lopez. She's professor of practice at Georgetown Law, formerly one of the leading police reform lawyers at the Department of Justice. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more. Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice. And our guest on this episode is Christy Lopez. She is professor of practice at Georgetown Law School. And she is also a former leading lawyer in the Department of Justice on all things police reform, guided number of the consent decrees for police departments across the nation. Christy, before the break, we were talking about what defund actually means and your excellent Washington Post column from June of 2020 and we'll put a link to it up on our website so people can read it for themselves and, and what I heard you to say is it's don't take it literally but take it seriously we need to look at public safety much much deeper and broader than we have in the past um, and uh, we need to rethink whole systems of which policing is a part that's right. I think there are, are very, there are a few, but there are very few people who are really advocating to actually zero out the budgets of first responders and first responder agencies. And, and I don't think that's a good idea. I do think we need first responders and I think that should be state sponsored and regulated. Um, I think what we've seen in recent weeks indicates that um, the, the pathologies that concern people about policing, um, the, the explicit implicit racism, um, for example, the, uh, the, the overbearing attitude, we can have those same pathologies in, pri in private individuals. And I think if we didn't have police forces, we would have roving bands of individuals with weapons who would be trying to fill that space. So I just think, you know, it's just, we're not at a place where we, as a, as a society, and perhaps never will be, where we don't need someone with that ability to be a first responder. Um, but I think that we, that doesn't mean that we can't dramatically change uh, what that role looks like and shift a lot of what we currently have police do to other uh, agencies, government agencies, so that police can focus on that first responder um, role. It's so interesting to me because it reflects exactly the discussion we've had here on the ground in Pittsburgh. Uh, I know that you co-chaired uh, D.C.'s commission after the George Floyd uh, uh, death uh, to do police change and reform there. I was part of the very same kind of effort here in Pittsburgh, and uh, we have ended up with many of the same issues. We want to shift things away from the police department that, frankly, the police department doesn't want. They don't want to be policing people for being homeless and stealing a fruit pie or something. They don't want to be responding to mental health crises if they can help it. 
Um, so it's a question of getting things into a better order with the right people to respond, putting the resources in those places. Um, so um, we've got this and, and in, the, in the transition uh, that you've made, you have not just stepped away from some of the frontline Department of Justice work, uh, but you are now stepping up in terms of what you do at Georgetown. You've created and helped to lead and create several new programs there uh, through uh, the, uh, the law school's uh, uh, innovation, innovative policing program. I think that's the way it's called. Uh, one of those I wanted to ask you about is uh, really de deals very deeply with uh, policing and police culture. It's called ABLE. Uh, which uh, I'll allow you to uh, define and talk about. And, and please tell us, what is that? And you must find that this is still something that police need. Sure. Um, when I came to Georgetown, I was very happy to quickly fall in with a, a group of other professors there who were very interested in criminal justice reform. Um, Rosa Brooks, uh, Chris Henning, Paul Butler. And together we co-founded the Innovative Policing Program which first focused on a uh, project called Police for Tomorrow Project, which really seeks to elevate the voices of line officers, both to educate them more deeply about their role and the role of policing, but also to learn from them. Um, it, the line officer voice is not a voice we hear from enough in my view. So that's part one of our projects. Um, and that's a wonderful project that's on ongoing. But then on May 25th, when all of us saw that video and we saw not only Derek Chauvin Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck for, for nearly eight minutes, but also those other three officers standing around. I oh, think gosh. that that was so horrifying for people. I, and I think you can't really disaggregate that incident from that part of it. The part that wasn't just that one officer, it was those other officers who didn't step in and do anything, even though the crowd was begging them to. And unfortunately that is a dynamic that I have experienced since the very first days I was doing this work, I know you remember this along with me, David, back before there were cell phones and body cams and you're reading the use of force reports and the investigations and you, you're piecing things together and you're realizing that there were 12 officers on the scene and somehow nobody saw anything. And then yeah. later on, when, when we start having cameras and video and you realize, indeed, there are 12 officers on scene and they are doing nothing. Um, and when I was in New Orleans, I, we actually wrote into the consent decree there a requirement that they begin to teach their officers how to intervene. And this was based on the science of a man named Irvin Staub, the research of a Holocaust survivor named Irvin Staub, who has dedicated his life to trying to understand why it is that people don't intervene when they should to prevent harm. And what he learned is that although most of us think that we always will intervene when it's important, many of us don't all the time for a number of reasons that are very understandable. Um, however tragic. But an important part of what he learned is that you can actually train people. You can teach people to intervene, to be better at intervening, and that this has application, we think, for policing. So that's what they did in New Orleans. And it seemed that was to be, called the EPIC program, wasn't it? Yeah, that was called, yeah, Ethical Policing is Courageous is the name that they used in, and are still using in New Orleans. And um, I went down there, I watched it, I watched the training. It, it seemed to be having quite a big impact. Um, 
it was hard to measure the impact because if you'll remember that consent decree has 492 paragraphs requiring oh, 492 gosh. different things. And so how do you isolate the impact of any one intervention, right? But it seemed like, you know, survey reports and, and you know, use of force was down and, and complaints were down. So when, when I, but it was hard to get other departments interested and other communities interested in that. You would always have communities say, we shouldn't have to teach our officers that, and that is true. And you would have police departments say, we already do that, which was generally not the case. Um, but <laughs> after George Floyd was killed, there people understood that we need to do something to get officers to intervene when something like this is occurring. Think how much pain and, you know, you know first and foremost, George Floyd's life could have been saved um, if the officers had intervened effectively. Um, and, and, and so much other, you know, trauma and, and angst could have been avoided. So what we decided to do very quickly, I got on the phone with Jonathan Arany, who's actually the monitor in New Orleans and is a big champion of this work. And we decided to launch this through Georgetown. Um, and it's been really um, taking a lot of our time and been incredibly rewarding so far. We've trained, uh, we, we're using a train the trainer model right now. And we've trained um, people from over 100 agencies and we're starting to train NYPD, I believe next week. Um, and the entire, state of, the entire state of New Jersey later this spring. Um, and we're trying to combine the training with um, what we're calling the 10 ABLE program standards. Because the idea here is to not only influence officers and train them to be better at, at intervening to prevent harm, but to actually use this focus on moral courage and this redefinition of loyalty to drive policing culture in the right direction. So our theory of change is sort of an iterative process. We affect conduct, which, in, which uh, we affect conduct, which impacts culture, which then uh, impacts conduct again. That is what that last part that you said, I really want to emphasize that because for so long, the culture in policing has been that person in the blue uniform, that's your brother or sister, and you protect them because they protect you. And that's part of the culture that has to change. And what I hear you saying is that you're hoping to influence how officers view their moral duty. It isn't just a matter of being loyal to their fellow officers. Yeah. One way to think about it is that sometimes being loyal to your fellow officer doesn't mean letting that officer do whatever he or she wants to do. It means stepping in to prevent that officer from ruining their career, ruining the, the lives of their family members, um, and, and, and causing great harm to someone. That's what loyalty should require. That's right. So um, this isn't the only innovative program at the innovative policing program. There's an, another thing uh, called uh, policing for tomorrow. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that? So that was the brainchild of Rosa Brooks, who's a professor at Georgetown and also was a reserve officer um, with, with the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. And, and she was there during the summer when there were a number of police shootings and police protests in the summer of 2015. And she was very uh, struck by how little those issues were being addressed in the academy and how little other really important issues to officers were being addressed in the academy. A lot of time was spent on, on firearm certification and defensive tactics, but not much time on, for example, uh, the impact of homelessness on policing, gentrification, adolescent brain development, 
um, the history of race and policing, all of these things that are really important for police to understand the communities they're working in and to understand why they're getting the reactions they're getting from individuals. And so we launched this program to uh, provide that kind of uh, education to a select group of officers that we chose because they appeared particularly open to thinking differently about policing. They were all line level officers. They had to be either still in the academy or um, within uh, one year of having started at MPD. We wanted to get them when they're still thinking and, and deciding what it means to be a successful police officer. And that, that program has been going ever since. We have monthly workshops. One of the things though that has been most surprising to me is the way that officers come to see that as a safe place and almost a support group to talk about some of the things that bother them about policing that they don't feel comfortable talking about. They will hear things in the locker room that they'll come and then tell their colleagues here in, in Police for Tomorrow Fellowship. We, and we talk about, you know, how can we go about changing that? We brought in a group of amazing change makers, Scott Thompson and Sue Rar, uh, uh, Chris Magnus, to talk to them about how do you actually change the culture of policing? Uh, and we had a little subtitle, Without Getting Fired. <laughs> um, they really, you know, teach them how to be effective um, in, in, in changing the way policing operates. And our hope is that they will go up and out through MPD and really bring new ways of thinking that will make them more open to a lot of the ideas that um, advocates are telling them, that people on the outside are telling them about the direction policing needs to go in. Well, the innovative policing program certainly lives up to its name. Uh, it's so interesting that you've been in police reform work so long and have watched uh, many tides come and go and you're still doing it. And now you've, you, you, you're on the academic side, but you have not let up. If there's one, one final thought you'd like to leave people with when we think about the future of policing and how to get there, the kind of policing that all of us want, keep all of us safe, make all of our places to live safe and, and, and livable, uh, what's, what's the one thing? And, you know, you can always stretch it to two. I think one of the things that is most fundamentally in the way of making real change is a mindset we have that to have a safe society, we need to arrest people and we need to put people in jail. We need to hold them accountable in that way. And I think we need to learn that we can hold people accountable um, without uh, criminalizing so many things and that police officers can be part of that, but that we need to bring in so many other aspects of um, government service uh, to really keep us safe. And if we do that and we do that in a way that recognizes, that is empathetic, that recognizes the privilege that many of us have had, um, that really puts primacy over helping individuals rather than punishing or redirecting or correcting individuals, I think that puts us in the right mindset to make the right choices about how to move forward. That's Christy Lopez. She is professor of practice at Georgetown Law, running the Innovative Policing Program, and spent a career doing police reform work at the U.S. Department of Justice. Thanks so much for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David. It was great to be here. Stick around for another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly.
And now let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Division. And this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly from high up on the judicial bench and well reported by the Houston Chronicle, Reuters, Law 360, a whole crowd of sources, is a returning winner, Federal District Judge Lynn Hughes of the Southern District of Texas. Long-time listeners may remember that Judge Hughes has put his foot in his mouth before, and we covered it. In 2018, the U.S. Court of Appeals removed Judge Hughes from a case because of sexist remarks that appeared to concern a female prosecutor. Hughes had dismissed the case because of a discovery mistake by the prosecutor, and he helpfully added, quote, It was a lot simpler when you guys wore dark suits, white shirts, and navy ties. We didn't let girls do it in the old days. Close quote. Well, after a stupid remark like that and being publicly admonished and removed from a case, Judge Hughes became a lot more cautious with how he spoke and tried to keep his mouth shut. No, he didn't. Of course he didn't. In the latest incident, a female professor alleged that she had been denied tenure by her university because of bias and then denied a position at another university because they talked to her former employer. Judge Hughes was pretty annoyed at having to preside over her case, and he made a regular practice of showing it. He repeatedly restricted the plaintiff's attempts to gather facts through the regular discovery process, the taking of depositions, sending written questions to be answered, and the like. All standard litigation practice, but Judge Hughes just didn't like the case, and he put the squeeze on it. And he said he didn't like it. He told the plaintiff and her lawyer at a case management conference early on that he would, quote, crush the plaintiff's case. When the plaintiff wanted to have a deposition of one of the deans involved in the tenure decision, Judge Hughes allowed it but said it could only go for two hours. When the universities who were the defendants conducted their depositions, Judge Hughes showed up. He attended. This is something your correspondent has never heard of before, and Hughes didn't show up just to watch. He got right into the action. When the plaintiff expressed unhappiness with his rulings, he sounded right off. Quote, if you're unhappy with the rulings I've made about the discovery, that's fine. Free country. This is not a place to discuss your feelings. It's a place to answer opposing counsel's questions. You have sued his client. They're, they're, they're the client's people, and they have a right to know exactly why. And after the deposition, Judge Hughes was not shy about his intentions. He openly asked lawyers for the universities whether they were going to move for summary judgment to get the case thrown out before trial, clearly wink-wink implying that they should. Talk about telegraphing the outcome. And when they did file for summary judgment, Judge Hughes wasted no time in granting it. Well, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals wasn't having this. Quote, from the outset of these suits, the district judge's actions evinced a prejudgment of the plaintiff's claims, the court said. In other words, Judge Hughes showed clear bias against the plaintiff in her bias case. Result, the appeals court took Judge Hughes off the case. And this is the second time they've had to do this. 
Judge Hughes, if you're listening, I've got one piece of advice. Just one. It's the same advice I used to give my clients when they called in the middle of the night telling me the nice policeman had told them their cases would go so much better if they waived their Miranda rights and just talked, just explained things. Here's my advice. Ready? Shut up. Just ex- please, please shut up. Say nothing. You're a judge. You can write your opinions, and a young law clerk can save you from embarrassing yourself. Because here's the thing. The appeals court has now taken you off two cases. Said that court, quote, we have a sense of deja vu. Yeah, Judge Hughes, three strikes, and you might be out. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice using our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal legal system? Well, why don't you just ask Dave? You can call 412-407-3389. That's 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact information, but we won't share that. You can also write out your question on our Ask Dave tab on that website. Remember, We are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really do appreciate that when you do it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. When someone goes to prison, it can destroy the family left behind, and even more so when no one really knows what happened. But then, what does the family do years later when that family member returns from prison? The story of Pastor Martin Thomas, the murder he committed, and his quest to make his life worthwhile again. That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.